You are listening to Payers, Providers, and Patients Oh My, a healthcare podcast put on by Kroll and Mooring. I'm Joe Records. And I'm Pio Nanavetti. And today we are talking to Shelley Rosenberg about removal under ERISA. Today is our first deep dive episode. Shelly, we're excited to have you in the studio today. We're going to do a deep dive to talk about removal under ERISA. Before we get into the details, what I'd like to talk about is really generally what happens when so a healthcare company plays in a space that is very regulated and very complex and healthcare entities get sued all the time. They so, certainly do. So when that happens, my understanding is that a healthcare company, really probably any complex entity, wants to be in federal court. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I think that's definitely true, Joe. Most corporate clients, and particularly healthcare insurance companies, prefer to be in federal court. And why do most corporate clients and healthcare insurance companies prefer to be in federal court? There are a lot of different reasons. I think the first and key reason is just that federal courts are standardized, and so the federal rules of civil procedure apply. It sounds so basic and so fundamental. But those are the rules that we all learned one time back in Civ Pro, the first year of law school. And so those are the rules. That's the playbook that we would all be playing by in federal court. So it's just a much more standardized process. A lot of times people refer to state court as a little bit more like the wild, wild west. Are there any other reasons why defendants would want to be in federal court? Yeah, generally... The judges are Article Three judges, so those judges are appointed for life in federal court versus in state court. It can be a hodgepodge. Sometimes the judges are elected. Sometimes they're appointed. It's all different. And usually that means that in federal court, you're going to have more sophisticated judges. Another reason is that in federal court, you have an automatic right of appeal. That's not always the case in state court. Again, just depends on what the rules are. There is also a larger jury pool, typically in federal court, because there's a larger geographic range. So if this is going to be a jury trial, that's a consideration. And then I think at the end of the day, it's also about the pace. In federal court, oftentimes things will move faster. Again, that's not always the case, but it still is a much more known commodity. Why does that matter, the pace of the proceedings? Well, it just depends. And so that is a consideration. And that's why, you know, at the outset, I said that corporate defendants will generally prefer to be in federal court. You might want a faster paced judge that is accustomed to dealing with complex issues, but you also might not. So in what cases would a defendant not want to be in federal court? Sometimes if a health insurer is being sued by multiple different plaintiffs regarding the same issue, you might actually strategically want to have different cases proceeding in different courts on different timelines. All right. So a complaint is filed, probably in a state court. And here we have a defendant who wants to be in federal court. What do they do? What's, what are the tools in the toolbox to get moved from state to federal? There are different ways to do that. But here what we're talking about is saying that the state claim has been completely preempted by ERISA. And so this is when things get a little bit complicated. When a state claim is completely preempted by ERISA, then that claim is converted into a claim that states a federal claim. Now, what's interesting here is that there's this thing called the well-pleaded complaint rule. And just give me a refresher on CivPro because it's been a few years. What is the well-pleaded complaint rule? The well-pleaded complaint rule essentially says that 
the federal question must actually be presented on the face of the plaintiff's complaint. So as the complaint stands on the day that it's removed, the complaint has to be well pleaded and state a federal question. But here, there's actually an exception. That's the doctrine of complete preemption. So what does complete preemption mean? So complete preemption is doctrine of subject matter jurisdiction. It basically says that some federal statutes are just so overpowering, overwhelming, that they have this preemptive effect that they actually, that entire substantive matter, that whole subject matter, supplants the state law. And so they, it makes that entire area of the law federal. And so ERISA is one of those examples where if a claim is truly based on ERISA, then it is completely preempted. So why is ERISA preemption an exception to the well-pleaded complaint rule? The reason why it's an exception to the well-pleaded complaint rule is it doesn't matter if ERISA is mentioned in the complaint itself. So typically, you have to actually state what the federal law is. But here, you wouldn't have to. And the well-pleaded complaint rule, I would think, gives a little bit of an advantage to plaintiffs in terms of selecting where the case will be tried because the plaintiff could kind of dance around something that could be characterized as an ERISA or should be characterized as an ERISA issue, but the plaintiff characterizes it instead as a state law issue based on the insurance code rather than based on federal ERISA. Exactly. That's where the phrase, the plaintiff is the master of his complaint, comes in, that the plaintiff decides where they want to sue and what their claims are. What's so interesting here is that the reason why complete preemption is an exception to the well-pleaded complaint rule is that, yes, the plaintiff is the master of his complaint, but this is, as you would say, a tool in the defendant's toolbox that they can say, hey, you didn't mention this statute, but actually this statute is implicated. And so therefore, I'm going to remove on that basis. All right. So I am a defendant a plaintiff has filed a complaint in a state court that doesn't mention ERISA. How do I argue that this is actually an ERISA issue and that because of the complete preemption exception to the well-pleaded complaint rule, we should be in federal court? So here's where it's interesting and gets a little bit tricky. Removal is actually super easy. From the state court to the federal court, you file a notice of removal. It can be real quick and simple short explanation, and the case will automatically get removed. At that point, though, the plaintiff will usually file to remand the case back to the state court. And that's where the arguments come in over whether or not ERISA is actually implicated. So the plaintiff is remanding back to state court and arguing that there is no basis to remove to federal court. And what are the bases that the defendant is using to argue that it should actually be removed to federal court. So health insurers thought, hey, these claims, if you take a step back, ERISA actually governs most health plans. There are certain exceptions to that, but most of the health plans that we know about or that we talk about, they are governed by ERISA. And because so, they're employer-sponsored. Exactly. And so most of the health plans that we are talking about in that sense, they implicate ERISA. And so health insurers thought, hey, these claims only exist because of an ERISA-governed health insurance plan, right? Isn't that enough? And that's where we have this distinction that comes in called the right to payment versus the rate of payment. I'm sorry, can we take a step back? I feel a question coming from our listeners about, well, wait a minute, 
lots of health plans are insured. They're not ERISA plans. But just to clarify, ERISA covers not just self-funded ERISA plans, but also fully insured or, or partially insured employer-sponsored coverage. It's not just the self-funded plans. It's all employer-sponsored coverage, right? Exactly. That's a great clarification. Thanks, Joe. So you were about to tell us about the difference between right to payment and rate of payment. So the 11th Circuit actually adopted or developed this distinction between two types of claims. There's those claims on the one hand that are challenging the rate of payment, and then on the other hand, those that are challenging the right of payment under the terms of the ERISA beneficiary plan. So what's the nature of a dispute generally where this issue comes up? So usually where I've seen this come up is a provider is suing an insurer. And the question then that you're asking is, does the claim actually implicate the patient's insurance plan? If the patient's insurance plan is implicated, then it usually falls under ERISA, and that is a right of payment, and therefore it is removable. On the other hand, if the claim implicates the provider's agreement with the insurance plan, then it typically does not fall under ERISA, and that's a rate of payment claim. So what do those terms actually mean, both rate of payment and right of payment, as they have been articulated in the 11th Circuit test? So a rate of payment claim challenges the amount of payment for a particular service. It is fundamentally what it sounds like. The insurer paid $20 for a particular service, and it's being challenged that instead they should have paid $30, $40. That is the rate of payment. It's, yes, this service was needed, but the dispute is about how much was paid for the service. And that's generally governed by state law rather than ERISA? Exactly. Right of payment claims usually challenge non-payment itself because the insurer is denying the service altogether. And the insurer is, for whatever reason, they're denying it. They're saying it's not medically necessary or administrative remedies weren't exhausted. For some reason, it is being entirely denied. So as one court put it, the distinction is actually whether the claim is payable at all. If the claim is payable, then it falls under ERISA, if that's the question that you're answering. And I should say that usually we're breaking it down and talking about a single claim. Typically when we're working on these cases, they're what's commonly called as claims dumps. And so it will be an amalgamation of thousands and thousands of claims, and those are all being challenged together. It's not one single claim. Are there cases that, I mean, we're talking about in broad strokes here, the right to payment question is a binary one, whereas the rate of payment question is probably more on a continuum. Are there claims that would be kind of close to the line between those two that are difficult to characterize, or maybe that you could argue are either a right to payment question versus a rate of payment question, or is it always pretty clear? I think that's where the litigation comes in, and that's where it can get interesting, is very complicated arguments are made that, as you say, it's blended. And in particular cases, I would also say, you know, we've worked on cases where there are both types of claims at issue. So is this a claim-by-claim claim inquiry? Well, it's a good question, and I'd say it depends, as the, the good law school answer. But I really mean it. And I should say also that we get into other issues here where if there are so many claims at issue, we worked with statisticians where we actually sample the claims at issue because 
if you actually think about it, you know, I was describing these claims dump cases. They are a whole bunch of separate mini claims. Whether or not the person that went to the hospital actually did the insurer pay properly and was that service medically necessary. But we have, like I said, hundreds or thousands of claims. And so we sample the claims. Where this can get interesting, though, is with sampling, a lot of times we'll try to break up the claims, right? So how would you break up the claims? You know, it's a great question. There's no single way to sample. It's very fact-specific. And that's where this is also interesting. We're talking about rate of payment versus right of payment. But the basis of remanding a case is extremely fact-specific. It depends on what is actually going on in that particular case. But to get back to the question of sampling, it depends on what's going on. And so as a first cut, you'll often want to sample based on the product. Maybe there's several different products at issue. Meaning the particular, the benefit package, the set of... Exactly. You may want to sample on the basis of the location of services if there are multiple locations at issue. And then there's this question, as we're getting at the heart of the issue here, you want to separate your claims into those that the question is, was the amount proper? That's rate of payment, separate from the, was this claim payable at all? And then when you get into whether the claim was denied or not, you're getting into issues of, well, why was the claim denied? Does this come up outside of the healthcare context, given that ERISA governs more than just health plans? No, it's usually in the healthcare context. The majority of cases that I've looked at and that we've surveyed in preparation for this podcast are in the healthcare health insurance context. Sometimes there's a case here or there in the employment or a severance agreement context, but it really seems to be a healthcare doctrine. Is this distinction between right to payment and rate of payment, is this a new feature of ERISA litigation or is this something that's kind of been around since ERISA? So the ERISA, I think it's 1974, so it has not been around since 1974, Joe. But the distinction really started to be seen post-2004. And the reason for that... So it was after ERISA's 30th birthday party, they did a... Okay. Got it. So there was a fairly famous Supreme Court case that came up in 2004. And that case is commonly used now in determining complete preemption under ERISA. I mean, we're talking about a specific section here, 502A. And so the preemption inquiry is used in determining, as we've said, whether removal is proper in cases dealing with motions to remand. Almost every case you read cites this one particular case from the Supreme Court. All right. So we've got a major Supreme Court decision in 2004. And I know you've mentioned a couple of circuits. Does this come up all over the place or are there sort of hotbeds of activity? So it appears that this distinction of rate of payment versus right of payment has touched almost all circuits. Again, in the cases that I looked at, it has not come up in the Second Circuit and has not come up in the Federal Circuit. But what's interesting is that it is most common in the Fifth Circuit and in the Eleventh Circuit by a long shot. So I talked about the Eleventh Circuit. Even within the Eleventh Circuit, it's very common in Florida. And like I said, the actual inquiry is pretty uniform in terms of setting out what the legal standard is, and then it comes down to what the facts of the case are, and those differ from case to case. So it sounds like the key takeaway is it depends on the facts. You got it. It depends where it all began. So how have plaintiffs responded to defendants' pursuit of removal? So what I've started to see is in state court complaints, 
there are state court complaints, there'll be an allegation that actually says, hey, by the way, this is a rate of payment dispute. This is not a right of payment dispute. And what the plaintiff is signaling there is defendant healthcare plan, don't even try to remove this case because if you want to remove it, you're not going to be able to based on our allegation. Haven't seen this exact issue litigated yet in that context, but I think it's really interesting because it's the plaintiff essentially saying, let's avoid this fight over removal, remand. We're here in state court. This is where we filed our complaint and this is where we want to stay. Shelly, thanks for being here. We'll leave it there. Thanks for having me. Had a great time this morning. Payers, Providers, and Patients Oh My is a podcast brought to you by Kroll and Mooring LLP. You can find more information at kroll.com slash healthcare podcast. Thank you.